Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. We're discussing the Edmonton Elks and Ottawa Red Blacks officially being eliminated from playoff contention. Bo Levi Mitchell's return to the lineup for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Sean Lemon becoming just the 13th player in CFL history to reach 100 career sacks. Darian Durant reflecting on a controversial tweet. And our picks for week 19 in the CFL. But first. The Blue Bombers defeated the BC Lions in overtime in week 18, putting Winnipeg in a great position to finish first in the West Division yet again. The Leos dominated the first half, but the Bombers' defense adjusted and clamped down over the final two quarters to force overtime. In a matchup of MOP frontrunner Zach Kolaris completed 75.6% of his passes for 389 yards with two touchdowns and one interception, while Vernon Adams Jr. completed 57.6% of his pass attempts for 352 yards and one touchdown. What did this game mean in terms of the race for first place in the West and the CFL Most Outstanding Player Award? Well, when it comes to the race in the West, I think it means it's Winnipeg's race, right? I actually picked the Lions to win this game because I thought that on the track meet that is BC Place in the Dome, with Jordan Maximic putting that offense together, I thought, okay, Winnipeg is going to have a really tough time corralling this elite group of receivers the Lions have, especially with Demiro Houston, Winnipeg's boundary corner, and CFL interception leader out due to injury. And at halftime, I felt like that prediction was aging like a fine wine. However, Richie Hall started flexing in the second half and turned Vernon Adams Jr. from an MOP to uh, an LOP, least outstanding player. Richie Hall has been in this league as a player and assistant coach, primarily as a defensive coordinator for 40 years. And it's clear that his adjustments, I mean, they, they just made Vernon Adams Jr. look foolish. I mean, he was up over 250 yards in the first half. He finished the game with 352, but 65 of those yards came on the last play from scrimmage with Dominic Rimes, at least in regulation, but Dominic Rimes almost scored the game-winning touchdown. So the offense did nothing in the second half. Kudos to Winnipeg's defense for making those adjustments. The two red zone fumbles from Zach Kolaris were obviously terrible. But when you take those into consideration, and not, I'm not discrediting BC's defense, the plays that they made, Matthew Betts was great, Sione Tayema was great coming off the edge of the other side for the Lions. I thought that this game was a lot less close than the score indicated. This should have been a two or three possession Blue Bombers win, especially the way, again, the defense adjusted. And to me, Zach Kolaris is the MLP. I've been saying it for the entire season, really. No discredit to Vernon Adams Jr., who has played better than I thought he would. He's been excellent this year. But count me among the Zach Kolaris camp. I'm going to disagree with you here, Hodge. And it's not because I'm backing my horse, VA, who we know 
I love, and I wrote going into this game, he should have been the front runner. Look, he didn't deliver. It's as simple as that. And I don't think that was necessarily VA's fault. It was an embarrassing performance from the offense as a whole in the second half. Richie Hall adjusted. He stopped sending pressure, which they had success against in the first half. But Vernon Adams Jr. was still getting rushed by three guys. The offensive line did not do their job, in my opinion, to the best of their abilities. And Vernon Adams Jr. didn't have the time to create with nine men dropping back in coverage. I thought it, Jordan Maximic didn't adjust his game plan in the second half to account for that. B.A. wasn't put in a position to succeed. And the offense suffered as a result. It wasn't necessarily mistakes from the quarterback position. But if you want to talk about mistakes from the quarterback position, the only reason why the Lions were way out in front in this game and the only reason they kept it close in the second half was because of mistakes by Zach Kolaris at three moments, in key moments. And you noted, Hodge, the two red zone fumbles. Well, there's actually a third, because if we all remember, in the first half, they got down in the red zone, and he fumbled a snap without any pressure on him whatsoever, and that killed the drive that ended up resulting in a field goal instead of a touchdown. And then, of course, was stripped twice in the second half in key moments that could have put this game away from the Blue Bombers. So I wasn't super impressed with Zach Kolaris's performance either. The guy who stood out as the best player on the field, bar none, and this pains me to say because you guys both know I hate the running back position. I doubt <laughs> its value. I don't want to give any credit to it, but it's becoming awfully hard at this stage in the season not to say that the most outstanding player in the league is Brady Oliveira. What he did against the Lions, 80 yards on the ground, yeah, that's not an eye-popping statistic, but 85 yards through the air as well. There was no facet of the game where he wasn't making an impact. The Lions had no answer for him. And quite frankly, there hasn't been a team in the league that's had an answer for Brady yet this season. Vernon Adams Jr., from my perspective, was never really in the league's most outstanding player race, despite what the homer JC wants to say. And I say that in jest. I mean, <laughs> I think some people should realize here that Last year, it was pretty terse between J.C. and Vernon Adams Jr. when he questioned his play. So some people need to remember that. He's not just a homer. I'm just joking around. To me, this is a two-player race, and it's between Zach Kolaris and the aforementioned Brady Oliveira. Kolaris has been by far the best player in the league the last two seasons. That's why he's won the award. This season, I think it's different, and the main reason being so is because of the turnovers. He's just been at times seemingly careless with the football. And it was showing up a little bit in this game. And I think that's why Brady Oliveira is getting more and more credence in this discussion. If this was, let's say, one Andrew Harris having this type of season, let's go back to 2019. Put aside the performance-enhancing drugs, suspension, all the rest. Obviously, that factored into the voting. If that didn't happen, would Andrew Harris have been the MOP of the CFL? I think there's a great possibility. And Oliveira is putting up better numbers than Harris did in that season from an overall total yards from offense perspective. I think Brady Oliveira definitely needs to be in this conversation. He is an absolute sledgehammer for this team, especially in the fourth quarter. And he's the guy that's thrown the jabs throughout the game, along with his offensive line, to soften those teams up 
to deliver the knockout blow at crunch time. I think Brady Oliveira needs to legitimately be in this MOP conversation. When it gets to that point, it's going to be interesting. I'm curious for you guys to weigh in on this because people are going to say, well, without Zach Kolaris there, the box will be stacked and it would be totally different. But let's say Drew Brown was playing quarterback, for example. And this is no slight against Kolaris, but would this team be about the same? Would they be worse? Would they be better? If Brady Oliveira wasn't there, would they be better? Would they be worse? Would they be about the same if you put in a different running back? Well, there was one game this year in which Kolaris did not play. That was the Week 11 contest against Calgary, and Oliveira carried the ball 14 times for 80 yards, caught two passes for 19 yards. So it did have essentially 100 yards from scrimmage, though not dominant numbers. By the way, when it comes to J.C. hating running backs, I saw this amazing clip the other day of Bijan Robinson of the Atlanta Falcons, by the way, running behind an offensive line that starts Matthew Bergeron out of Quebec at left guard, the rookie who played at Syracuse last year. And he jump cuts and there's about three defenders that go spilling by and look stupid. And Robinson scores an eight yard touchdown. And I could just hear JC's voice in my head going, it doesn't matter because any running back could do that. <laughs> they should use that pick on someone. Any person could do that. It doesn't matter. I, I stand by it. I stand by it. Hunk. We need more of that impression. Yeah, it doesn't sound anything like JC, but it's fun to do. Um, <laughs> getting back to the, the matter at hand, though, and I, I would certainly not be offended by Brady Oliveira being the MOP candidate he has been sensational to me he's a shoe in for moc he has now had the i believe it's second best rushing season or he's right on the door for the second best rushing season by a canadian in history he's now surpassed andrew harris's best season when he ran for 1390 yards and you mentioned 2019 dunk i think the context of that was important so that the west division nominee for mop after harris didn't get the local nod was Cody Fajardo. Now Cody Fajardo had 10 rushing touchdowns that year, but he only threw for 18 touchdowns in what was his first season as a starter in Saskatchewan. And of course at the league level, the award went to Brandon Banks, who was representing the East division, then playing for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. So I don't think the competition that season was as strong as it is this season, right? There are people who are still in the Chad Kelly camp for MOP. There are still many people in the Zach Kolaris camp for MOP. There, There is more competition this year in 2019. So yes, I do believe had the suspension not occurred, Andrew Harris would have been the MOP in 19. But this year, I think there's a stronger ticket overall. And I'm excited to see who wins it. Again, I am still in the Zach Kolaris camp. But my ballot, I think, has changed. It would have been a week ago, Kolaris 1, Vernon Adams 2, probably Chad Kelly 3, Brady Oliveira 4. Right now, I probably would put Brady at 2 behind Zach with, to be perfectly honest, not a huge gap between them. For me, the only reason as a running back hater, I'm able to stand here with a straight face and say, I think Brady Oliveira deserves this award. It's because of what the award is, right? In most leagues, we have an MVP award, most valuable player. And without a question in football, you cannot make an argument that there's a player more valuable than the quarterback position. That makes it by default, the award for the best quarterback because of value. And every metric shows us that running backs just don't have as much value as other positions, just based on what they're asked to do as a position, as a position and 
the the necessity to have a good offensive line in front of them to have production. But when you change it to the CFL model, which is most outstanding player, then you have to look at the production without value interfering with that conversation. And I think at this stage, Brady Oliveira has crossed the threshold in my mind that I need to see in order to say, okay, throw out everything else. This guy has been the best in the league. He's done that right now with the numbers he's putting up, and he's going to continue to put up as the Bombers finish the season. If it was a CFL MVP award, my vote will go to Chad Kelly hands down because I think he's been the most valuable player to any team this season. And that's directly due to this conversation we're having between Zach Calaris and Brady Oliveira for MOP. To me, that changes the discussion entirely. And I would just love JC to do the impersonation of Hodge's impersonation of himself talking before we end this segment. Can we get that on record? Anybody could do that. Any running back can do that. It's just the blockers up front. How's that? That's not bad. JC as Hodge as JC. I like that. (laughs) Only two teams can qualify for the third and final playoff spot in the West Division, and they happen to be playing this week as the Saskatchewan Rough Riders visit the Calgary Stampeders. Boys, this is what we call a race to the bottom. The Riders have lost five straight, but can clinch the last postseason spot with a win, while the Stamps have lost six of their last seven and can secure the season series with a game in hand with a victory. Which team do you see earning the spot? Boy, oh boy. Um, So much for the West Division being better than the East, hey? This has totally changed that narrative this season with with how bad Saskatchewan and Calgary have been. Quite frankly, I think the best response to this question is from someone on Twitter, and forgive me, I didn't catch the username, so I'm going to steal this from whoever it is uncredited. But they said, forget about Saskatchewan or Calgary for that final playoff spot. Take Trey Ford, put an all-star from all the teams that didn't make the playoff around him, and make them be the final playoff team. That's the only way we can have an entertaining West semifinal. Neither of these teams deserve it. Both of them have had atrocious seasons. And I would have said up until a week ago that Saskatchewan should have the edge because I thought they were the better team. But after that performance, in that circumstance, that team should be embarrassed, and I don't think they are. I really don't think they have it in them right now. They came out flat in a week that they had to honor their history. They had to honor one of the greatest players to ever wear a CFL uniform. And yes, I've heard the arguments that what does a 25-year-old American know about George Rieger care? But if you're here, if you're playing for that club, and you don't embrace that history and that tradition and recognize, at least in that pregame moment, what that means, that legend status, and that you can achieve that, if you go out on that field and give it your all, if that doesn't mean something to you, you don't deserve to be wearing the uniform of a Saskatchewan Rough Rider. And quite frankly, this team has lost all my respect in the last week. So I'm going to go with the Calgary Stampeders pulling a little bit of an upset. At least Craig Dickinson admitted that was an awful performance from his team. I hope his players felt that because it was just terrible on the day that you're honoring 
not only a Rough Riders legend, but a CFL legend. His family's in the house. You have number 34 decals, not just on the Rough Riders helmets, but credit the Tiger Cats for wearing them as well. And you put up that performance, just awful. That gives me no confidence in this team whatsoever. Full credit to Three Down Nation contributor Brendan McGuire for coming up with the idea for this team making coaching change because I think that's the only thing that they can do if they actually get into the playoffs. I would like to see either the defensive coordinator Jason Shivers or offensive coordinator Kelly Jeffrey call the shots here just to try to infuse some new energy. I almost at this point, I can't believe I'm going to say this, feel a little bit bad for Dickinson because I think some of these players just are not playing with the passion required to be successful, let alone getting paid as a pro. Some of this display or supposed display of want to or get after it or just anything to show that they care has been terrible. I'm not saying it's the entire team, but collectively you put them together and it's just not a good group of players so for that reason I can't believe I'm going to say this because Dave Dickinson doesn't even want to talk about playoffs in Calgary but I think the Stampeders have a chance here I've got the Calgary Stampeders winning this game and going to the playoffs I don't care that they're four and 11 they've got three games left and by the way their last two are against BC and Winnipeg that's going to be easier said than done though there is always of course a chance that those teams will have concluded their their trek that is still ongoing to finish first in the West Division by then and will be resting some starters. But this Riders team, I, I mean, I don't want to just sit here and repeat what you guys said, but it was a disgusting performance. Jamal Morrow used that word to describe it. He was a former Washington State product, just like George Reed was. I think he did understand. And by the way, JC, there's no excuse for any player on that team to not know who George Reed is because they walk by his statue to get to the building every day. Jeez. Like, like unbelievably pathetic performance. I said it on the show last week. I put it in my picks for last week. If the Riders didn't win that game, they weren't going to win another game all year. And I'm sticking with that. This team is going to lose out. I think they're going to miss the playoffs and kudos to Brendan McGuire. But at, at the same time, let's remember, this is not a situation where Craig Dickinson has two years left on his contract. He is a free agent after this season, and it is remarkably clear, and please don't, for, for ultra clarity, I am not reporting that he will not be back with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I'm just pointing at the very obvious fact at this point, or at least what seems like a fact, which is that he will not be the head coach of this team next year, and he is going to be looking for work elsewhere. Because why on earth would you renew the contract extension of somebody whose players evidently don't want to play for him? Like I, I like Craig Dickinson as a dude. He did a great job of coaching that team in 2019, had some trials and tribulations in 2022. You know, I, I think he deserved to be brought back, but that club has not only not taken a step forward, they've been just as bad. I mean, this past off season, Craig Dickinson was asked about where it went wrong in 2022. He pointed at the Labor Day Classic and said, we played a great game. We still lost on a late field goal. And I thought that that completely deflated our team. And then, of course, they all got sick for the Banjo Bowl. I think they won one more game down the stretch. Well, guess what? This year they win the Labor Day Classic to go to 6-5. and five. And everyone's going, oh, we've changed the narrative here. We've changed the story. We, we Riders win Labor Day. This is going to care. They've lost five games in a row since against some mediocre team. They lost to Ottawa. They lost to Hamilton at home with the emotion that like, the beautiful ceremony that took place. That was a first-class pregame ceremony. Georgette Reed's words 
were touching. She did such a beautiful job of speaking about her father and addressing the crowd before the game. You got the 2013 Grey Cup team on hand. Darian Durant did a great job speaking to TSN, shaking hands, kissing babies, signing autographs. This team, I'm done with this. Enough of this team. Call me in 2024, Saskatchewan. Y'all stink. You stink. Yeah, I, I don't want any of this to come across like we're calling for Craig Dickinson's job because I think that's an insensitive thing to do. And Craig Dickinson, for all his many faults, has been, I think, a fantastic guy with the media. media he has always treated us right. He's uh, you know, one of those guys well, who mostly. asks. Mostly, mostly. He's one of those guys who <laughs> I think asks asks how you're doing, is genuine in that. One of the good guys in this profession, and there's not a lot of them. But it's clear right now that this is a horse with a broken leg, right? And there's nothing you can do to fix it. He's lost that locker room. And the kindest thing you can do is pull out the old shotgun and get her done. And quite frankly, I don't know why you even wait until the last game of the season or to the playoffs, like Brendan McGuire said. And it's difficult because I don't necessarily think Kelly Jeffries or Jason Shivers is that guy who can be the head coach. But at least give him a shot to show it right? There's nothing that you're gaining right now from keeping the status quo in Saskatchewan, and it's just a pitiful situation. And by the way, the Calgary Stampeders hardly inspire confidence. They've been miserable. But it speaks volumes that I'm still feeling a lot better about Calgary than I'm about Saskatchewan right now. My goodness. Bo Levi Mitchell returned to the field in week 18 for the first time since suffering a fractured leg in July, completing four of six pass attempts for 129 yards and one touchdown in Hamilton's win over Saskatchewan. Matthew Shields looked impressive the rest of the way, causing some to question if the team should continue this tandem arrangement. Do you believe a two QB approach can work for the Ticats? It can work, but I don't like it as a former Canadian university quarterback at all. It doesn't allow you to get in a rhythm and feel the game and all those kinds of things. We've seen it in the past, but in the long run, I don't necessarily think it is the best thing to do. I think the actual debate here is whether or not the Tiger Cats are better off with Bo Levi Mitchell starting and playing an entire game or Matthew Shields or even Taylor Powell. Mr. Hodge noted, I believe it was on the show last week, the statistical differences between these professional quarterbacks and by far and away, Shields and Powell have outproduced Mitchell this season. That said, Mitchell looked really good last week in what was apparently planned load management for Mitchell, that he was going to just play part of that game and have Schultz go the rest of the way. I can't quite understand why you wouldn't want him to continue to play and get into a rhythm for the playoffs. I'm sure he's going to play more before that and Probably that had to do with the injury he was coming back from. But still, Bolivar Mitchell needs to play football and inspire some confidence if he indeed is going to be the Ticats starter when it comes down to sudden death playoff time. Yeah, this this management made absolutely no sense to me. Like if Bo is healthy, he plays. And if he's not healthy, he sits. He like he, he attempted six passes. Like this was a glorified preseason performance. Um, and the Riders honored that by playing like a team often would in preseason. <laughs> um, but I, I'll give the Ticats credit for this. It worked, right? It, like, like this script did not make sense to me. 
but but I mean, they won by 25 points on the road. So you can't criticize that. To me, uh, like Bolivar Mitchell is is the second highest paid quarterback in the CFL. The thought that he is going to be a tandem guy from here on out does not work. But also Bo has generally not worked for most of the season, right? He's had two bad injuries. He's now, even with this touchdown, thrown four touchdowns to nine interceptions this year. Um, I, I don't hate the tandem idea for the playoffs, but this is not something that is sustainable through 2024. When, by the way, Bo is still under contract to be one of the highest paid players in the league. So if this is what Hamilton has to do, because like Hamilton is pulling at all the stops here to try to get to that great cup at home, try to win that great cup at home and that league long great cup drought they have in place. Uh, so I, again, I don't like this for the future, but if this can be what they use for the next, we'll call it a month to try to get to that gray cup that is at home at Steeltown, where they lost the game narrowly in overtime in 2021, then, Hey, if it works, it works, right? I like what the Ticats were able to do with Omar Bayless, getting him into the lineup. He's been an upgrade over Duke Williams since entering the lineup. He was the highest graded receiver from PFF this week. So if two quarterbacks makes it work, fine. Again, I'm not a fan of two two quarterback systems personally, but if it works in the short term, you can't criticize it if it's working. I don't think a two quarterback system is sustainable in the long run either, but I'm going to disagree with both of you guys in the sense that I quite enjoyed, or I thought this was a good strategy for Bo Levi Mitchell's return, right? It's a guy who's been out for a long time. We know he's getting up there in age. The body isn't what it once was. Give him a taste, right? The Ticats have already clinched the playoffs, right? As much as they're still battling for a home playoff game, they have some ability, some wiggle room where they could afford to have a couple bad quarters if Bo hadn't gone out there and looked good. But you give him that first segment of the game to get his feet wet, to get his touch wet, and then he comes back off. You put Matthew Shields in to finish it. I thought he did everything that they wanted him to, right? He looked really good. He's looked the best in that game that he has as a tie cat and it reminded me a little bit of maybe the quarter of resurgence that we saw from Bo last year in the West semifinal when he was playing for Calgary. He came off the bench in the fourth quarter in relief of Jake Mayer and suddenly looked like the Bo of old. This looked like the Bo of old in just four pass attempts, and that's what you want to see. You take him out, you protect him at that, and you, you establish a good baseline so you can get him more playing time going forward. I thought it was good roster management from the Ticats. That touchdown pass, Mitchell to Bayless, had some, and I stress some, of the zip that we're used to seeing from Bolivar Mitchell in his prime. He is not in his prime clearly anymore, but that pass to me, and yes, it was only one completion. It was for a touchdown, so sometimes they get magnified, but that showed me that, okay, Maybe he still does have it. I've talked to people around the league about Bolivar Mitchell who coach and scout and players that have played with him. And they felt like a lot of Mitchell's balls, and we can easily see it, have floated and lacked a zip. And there hasn't been many tight spirals. That ball to Bayless was tight on point in the right spot. And it was a ball that had some zip on it. If Mitchell still has some of those throws left in him, then I think he could still be 
at least a good, if not really good quarterback in this league. He has so much knowledge of the defenses in the CFL that he's going to see. But physically, we need to see more of those type of throws from this guy. If he is going to be the guy to lead Hamilton to a great cup appearance and potentially win the great cup at home, and Hodge alluded to it, he's the second highest paid quarterback in the league. The Ticats aren't going to sit this guy on the bench, regardless of what other people think of Matthew Schiltz in Taylor Powell. If he's having a cold spell, maybe Schiltz is going to come in, but I think Mitchell's going to be the guy that they put all of their money on, pun intended, $500,000 intended on Mitchell to try to get this cup at home. The Elks and Red Blacks were eliminated from playoff contention in Week 18, extending their postseason droughts to lengths of three and four seasons, respectively. As much as these two teams have struggled in recent years, which franchise are you more optimistic about for the 2024 season? There's only one answer here, and that's the Edmonton Elks. And the reason is pretty simple. It's because they've got a star quarterback, right? Trey Ford has done things this season that no other quarterback can do. If you want an example of that, please go ahead and watch our three down nation play of the week where he rolled out reverse field twice, got to the sideline and then ripped a 50 yard ball to Gavin Cobb at the back of the end zone. Ben Grant for, for Ben's breakdown this week for three down nation broke down that play. That's a great read. If you haven't checked it out already came out on Tuesday, October 10th, this, this, Young man is a team you can not only, or is, is, is a player you can not only build a team around, but is someone you can build your offseason marketing around, is somebody who you can build a lot of things around. He's already garnered the hype, and he doesn't have the stink of the team's home losing streak on him or the team's 0-9 start this season because he wasn't involved in that, right? As soon as he got in her center, this was one of the better teams, or it was at least an average team in the CFL. Now there's a lot of things that this team still has to improve upon the way they spend their money. Doesn't always make sense to me. Like some of their, their big splashes in the receiving core. I don't think necessarily paid off this team. I think needs to get a little bit better. Um, you know, at, at a few spots, I think, I think the O-line could use a little bit of work. Uh, I think they could probably stand to add another uh, pass rusher along the defensive line though. That's probably true of every CFL team. But I think that they've played enough rookies this year, especially a lot of young Canadians, that they're going to get a big bump in their development for year two. Ottawa, on the other hand, I mean, Dustin Crum has looked terrible the last two weeks after JC and I sang his praises. There's a lot of older players in that organization who I just don't think are very good anymore. And frankly, after losing almost all of their games for the last four seasons together, for seasons together, don't seem to mind losing together. And that is a dangerous thing for a professional team to have a group of guys who love coming to work every day and getting their butts kicked. Like, like it's good to have team cohesion, but it's also that's, that's partly to keep guys accountable. Right. And, and, and to not go out there and win three or four games every season. So I don't think the red black should make a GM change. I don't think they should make a head coaching change, but I do think that, some of their, their the work that their coordinators are doing have let them down. And personnel-wise, especially with their American players, I actually like their Canadians a fair amount. Um, but the American talent in the receiving core is not good enough. The American talent in the secondary is not good enough. The American talent in the front seven of the defense, I think, is a little bit overpaid. This team needs help in the worst way. And it sucks because our nation is a great fan base and they deserve to have a playoff team. And yet they're going to be on the outside looking in for the fourth 
time since the 2018 Grey Cup. I agree with you on just about every point there, Hodge. And look, I think both of these young quarterbacks have both incredible potential and some massive red flags as well. Trey Ford looks like the better of the two, but he needs to clean up some elements of his game and he needs to be a little bit better as a true passer if he's going to have sustained success going forward. I think we all recognize that. I think he recognizes that. And I know the team recognizes that. Dustin Crum, very similar. He's got to get the ball out of his hand. But I think there's potential there to develop. What really makes me say Edmonton is the better of these two teams or better position going forward is the talent elsewhere on the roster, right? If you look at the Red Blacks, besides Brandon Dandridge, and maybe Drew Desjardins on the offensive line. Is there anyone who really wows you? Is there anyone you can say and point to and go, wow, they had a great season this year. That guy lived up to the billing. You would have said that about Lorenzo Malden a year ago, but he has been a non-factor this season. Hasn't been one of the best pass rushers in the league like he was last year. Has taken a massive step back. I think They've been bad in the secondary. They're linebackers. Maybe Adam O'Claire, you throw him in as a, as a nice young piece there that, that is promising, but everyone else has been basically average. And that Bryce received, Carter would be one. Right. Okay. Bryce Carter. That's I like Joe. Right. I also like Jovan Santos Knox. He just, the knock on him is he, he's hurt. A, he was hurt amount. most of the season, but overall the, the team has not performed up to expectations and that receiving core, especially, and you know, that Hodge, has just been atrocious. And frankly, they have guys who are talented on that receiving core roster that haven't stepped up. Jalen Acklin was a guy we were talking about as one of the best young receivers in the league just a couple of seasons ago, and he's absolutely disappeared. So I don't have a lot of faith in the talent that the Red Blacks have in the building. If you go over to Edmonton, I think there's some very exciting young prospects, right? There's guys in that receiving core, even if they haven't had ideal seasons because of the start of the year, but there's talent there, right? Geno Lewis, you've got Dylan Mitchell still. You've got Kyron Moore. The running back, Kevin Brown, has been fantastic. And on the defensive side of the ball, I think there's some really positive young pieces that have had their growing pains, but you can see something from going forward. And then there's still some established veterans who've looked really good when called upon. Jake Ceresna and A.C. Leonard are both great veteran pass rushers. Luchez Purifoy still delivers in the secondary. Now we'll see what both of these teams look like after free agency and who gets re-signed and who gets brought back. But if you look at the pieces that are in place right now, it's clear that Edmonton has the better roster. It's Edmonton simply because of Trey Ford. If the Canadian quarterback does not sign an NFL contract, and some people might laugh, but... He had two NFL workouts last offseason, the New England Patriots and the Las Vegas Raiders. And because he's played more now and has even more film for NFL scouts to look at, I really think there is a higher possibility than last offseason and maybe even a higher possibility than some people think that Ford could get signed. He's an elite athlete, runs in the 4-4 range, sometimes can touch the high 4-3s, has a very explosive vertical and broad jump is a guy that has shown that on the field as well. And if he keeps making plays like he did in Toronto, Doug Flutie-esque, Patrick Mahomes-esque, that play was unbelievable. Those are the kinds of plays that NFL scouts want to see on film. Special 
eye-popping plays similar is obviously different, but to what Nathan Rourke did with the Jaguars in the preseason to earn a practice roster spot for now with the Jaguars. And I would encourage Mr. Ford to do what Nathan Rourke did to improve his accuracy and just overall his movement as a quarterback. Go look up Rob Williams. JC, I know you know about this guy out in BC. He's a movement coach. He's worked with Adam Big Hill. Trevor Harris went to see him after Williams was able to help completely change Rourke's mechanics and put his completion percentage through the roof. So if Ford continues to develop as a quarterback, this guy has such a high end that I think it's without a ceiling, to be quite honest, because of his elite athleticism. So I think there's a chance he goes to the NFL, but if he doesn't, then the Elks have a special one and they got to pay this dude a lot of money to keep him there. Yeah, and that should be something that the Edmonton Elks try to do this offseason is say, hey, we're going to tear up the third miserable year of your rookie deal, provided you're willing to sign a long-term extension to keep you in Edmonton through, let's say, 2025, 2026. So they can even throw some guaranteed money into the last year of that contract to help make that happen. One final note on the Ottawa Red Blacks receiving core, because I think JC nailed it on the head with Jalen Acklett having a miserable year this year. Justin Hardy actually leads the team. And I've seen some Red Blacks fans point to Justin Hardy as someone who is, you know, developing and whatever. First of all, Justin Hardy is 31 years old, so he is not developing. He is a finished product. Secondly, oh, and he also turns 32 in December. Secondly, Justin Hardy has 74 catches for 792 yards, two touchdowns. Now, he is Ottawa's only receiver with more than one touchdown. Granted, it's only two, but he does lead the team. He also has 112 targets. And any player who has the ball thrown to him 112 times will have a reasonable amount of yards. That's fifth most in the CFL. He has more targets than Austin Mack, Dalton Schoen, Tevin Jones, or Alexander Hollins, all of whom have like 20 to 30% more receiving yardage than he does. So uh, if I was the Auto Red Blacks, I would honestly change over all five of my starting spots in the receiving core for next season. The only exception might be Jalen Acklin. If I feel like with a new offensive coordinator, he can break out of his funk. But Yo, I like me one. some Nate Behar. He's pretty good. I would disagree. Yeah, to be honest. Just saying. But I, I like Nate as a dude. Nate Behar will be a much better broadcaster or writer or whatever he wants to be after football than he will be as a football player. I think he's still a serviceable Canadian receiver. I think he's a guy that you can stick on the field and win with if you have to. But he has endless potential off the field and I think a limited ceiling on it right now. I, I like Nate as a dude and I like him as a Canadian role player. And if you can pay him like a Canadian role player, I'd have him back in a heartbeat. I don't think Nate wants to be paid like a Canadian role player. I'll put it that way. Veteran defensive end Sean Lemon recorded his 100th career sack in Week 18, becoming just the 13th player in CFL history to do so. What does this mean for Lemon's legacy? And how far up on the all-time list can he go? It cements his legacy, from my perspective, as one of the best pure pass rushers in the history of the CFL. And depending how long he plays, and he still continues to produce, even though he's 35 years old, he has eight sacks over 11 games this year. And for people that haven't seen it, John Hodge has a 
list and a great piece up on this. How far can Sean Lemon climb up this sack leaders list? And I think this year he could probably get past Odell Willis because he's only one behind him. Willis finished his career with 101. Then you have Rodney Harding at 105. That's probably a lot to ask this year, but I think he could probably get into 12th place. And if he gets a contract next year, which I think he should deserve at this point because he's shown that age doesn't matter with this guy. He can still continue to get to the quarterback and get him to the ground with the best of them that he could get up into the top 10 and perhaps past Tyrone Jones, who was at 110 for his career. So I think what Lemon has shown is that his longevity is there. He can continue to do this at a high level. And he was brought into this team in the middle of the season. And I think really helped make over that defense that has the Alouettes in a playoff position with the potential to host a home playoff game. Yeah, I think that Sean Lemon, I mean, first of all, congratulations on 100 sacks. Given the way that this year started for Sean Lemon, and a quick refresher for those who have forgotten, he got cut in training camp as a member of the BC Lions and had to sit out for seven weeks before he got his first call and and was able to sign a contract with Montreal Wets. Now, clearly that has worked out exceptionally well for him and the Alouettes. His post-game comments um, were, were extremely... Uh, you know, bright, shiny, all that about the Montreal Alouettes. And they were echoed by head coach Jason Moss and franchise quarterback Cody Fajardo, who had previously played with Lemon in Toronto and BC. So this is now the third time they've been teammates. And um, in terms of how far he can go, I'm, I am I think his, his, his limit is 10th place. I think he could beat Tyrone Jones. He would need another 10 or 11 sacks in order to do that. But I agree. I think he should 100% be back in Montreal next year. This is a great fit. The Alouettes have moved on from both of their starting defensive ends from earlier on in the year. They parted ways with Nick Usher. They parted ways with Jamal Davis II. And the guy they've got now playing opposite Sean Lemon is young enough to be his son. We're talking about Luol Ugawak out of TCU, born in Edmonton to a very athletic family. He's got cousins and, and brothers playing in professional basketball right now. Ugoak has come on in a big way the last couple games with a couple of sacks over the last three games. So if I'm the Alouettes, I'm looking at this going, hey, not only is this affordable, because Lemon is a guy who is willing to play for not elite-level money. He's somebody who will put out elite-level production for decent money. And then you've got Ugoak on a very team-friendly, cheap contract. So you got two good bookends for cheap. How do you argue with that? So I think Lemon can get into the top 10. I don't think he's going to be able to get past that. The next guy on the list is Stuart Hill at 126. One interesting thing I learned while doing some research for this piece, and it is in the article if you want to check it out, is Stuart Hill and Vince Goldsmith with 126 and 130 and a half sacks, respectively, are both not in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, which I think is interesting because that was my next question is, well, is Sean Lemon a Hall of Famer? getting to 100 sacks? And the answer appears to be no. There is precedent for guys to reach even 125, 130 sacks and not be in the Hall of Fame. Though you never know. It's entirely possible that Goldsmith and Hill will still get in, even though they they have long since been retired. But we'll have to wait and see. There's clearly one way for Sean Lemon to cement his status as a Hall of Famer, and that's not staying in Montreal next year. That's going to Hamilton and completing the Kevin Glenn suite <laughs> of every single team right. in the CFL. If he does that and he has 100 sacks, 
how can you argue with him when it time comes time for the call to the hall? I always like to think, by the way, that that conversation with Kevin Glenn when he meets people in Detroit, they're like, oh, you played in the CFL? Which team? And he just goes, yep. <laughs> yep. They're like, no, seriously, which team? And he just goes, yeah, yeah, yep. The BC Lions are three-and-a-half-point favorites over the Hamilton Tiger Cats on Friday night in Steeltown. The Lions have to win to keep their faint hopes of winning the West Division alive, while the Ticats need to win to have any chance of finishing second in the East Division and earn a home playoff game. Which team is going to come out on top? This is an extremely tough game for me to pick because I don't think there's a team in the CFL right now that is hotter than the Hamilton Tiger Cats and what they've been able to do the last couple weeks. And the BC Lions, I think, are at risk of a little bit of an emotional letdown after losing that game last week. I know this is a team that you know cared very much about the results of that game. They know the implications that it has for their season. And there were some passionate voices in that locker room after that game. You want to see how they respond, whether it is a big you know, out, offensive output to prove that last week was an aberration, or do they shrink away from it and, and come out flat as they have done in the past? Because of those factors, I'm going to skew with the home side on this one, knowing I could be wrong, but I'm making the safe bet with the Ticats in Steeltown. I like Hamilton at home for a number of reasons. Tiger Cats won on the road at BC Place, showed that that trip and the time zone change didn't matter. I think the BC Lions are going to suffer from having to deal with that and also the emotional letdown that JC talked about. The quarterback position, whoever has been in there in recent weeks, has played really well, whether it's Bully by Mitchell, Matthew Schiltz, or Taylor Powell, even helping these guys out on the sideline. It's been a cohesive group that has worked together. And the Ticats are coming together at the right time. So they know that there's a chance they could host a playoff game at Tim Hortons Field. And if they win it, only have to go down the road, the QEW, to go to BMO Field and then perhaps go back to their home stadium for the Grey Cup. Lots on the line for Hamilton. I like the Tiger Cats. I like the Ticats against the spread. I think that it's actually very surprising that the Lions are getting more than a field goal here given that they have the long trip, that Steeltown does actually have a substantial home field advantage there at Tim Hortons Field, I still like the Lions to win straight up. But give me three and a half points for the Tabbies, I'm, I'm eating that up. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders are three and a half point underdogs on the road this week against the Calgary Stampeders as the two teams battle for the third and final playoff spot in the West Division. These squads split their first two meetings of the season in tight games, though they have not played since mid-July. Who has taken this one? I believe that the Calgary Stampeders will win and cover for the reasons we laid out. I mean, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders season is over as far as I'm concerned. They had their biggest game of the season, their biggest test, and not only did they fail the test, they slept in and missed the exam altogether, coming out as flat as the prairie that surrounds Regina. I don't like the Riders to win another game this year. I'm taking the Calgary Stampeders. Once, by the way, perceived to be unbeatable at home and unbeatable off the bye. Those two things have not been remotely true this year. Maybe Cowtown can do a throwback in this one. 
Stampeders have their backs firmly against the wall. They need to win this game to stay alive. And I don't think the Saskatchewan Rough Riders have any ability to finish anybody off right now. Certainly not with the way they're playing for head coach Craig Dickinson. This is an easy pick to me. I think the Stampeders are going to pull it out. It's time for whoever the real Stampeders are in 2023 to stand up. Hodge noted it. At home, off a bye. Jake Mayer, let's see your best along with the rest of your crew in this playoff push. I've got Calgary at home to get it done, even though they have not inspired confidence at all. The Montreal Alouettes are two-point favorites against the Edmonton Elks at Commonwealth Stadium this week as they look to lock up second place in the East Division with a win. Meanwhile, the Elks are officially in next-year territory as they were eliminated from postseason contention last week. Can the Owls win and cover to secure a home playoff date? I am a man who is contrite and owns his mistakes because I've been picking against the Owls the last couple of weeks and it's been biting me in the butt. This team does <laughs> not lose to teams that are sub 500. I really like the Elks, but I just can't pick against the Owls this week. I think Edmonton is still fighting and clawing despite that result in Toronto at BMO Field last week. It's at home for the Elks. Trey Ford can put on a show. The Owls still have something to play for, but something's telling me that Edmonton is trying to put together some good vibes heading into 2024. So I'll roll with my Canadian University quarterback brethren, QB Trey Ford, to get it done. The Montreal Alouettes are 0-7 this year against BC, Winnipeg, and Toronto. They are 9-0 and against everybody else. And for that reason and that reason alone, give me the Owls to win and cover this one against the Elks, the, the lower bowl Elks. The Ottawa Red Blacks visit the Toronto Argonauts on Saturday for a game that does not currently have a line, presumably due to Toronto's unclear plans at quarterback. The Red Blacks were officially eliminated from postseason contention following a terrible performance in Week 18, while the Argos are playing their fourth of six meaningless games to end the year. Who wins? It's the Argos, and it's simple. I could go out there right now and play QB for Toronto and win this game over Ottawa. <laughs> the Red Blacks have been so bad. I don't care if I need to crank the arm up. I'll take the game check. Sign me up to run Ryan Dinwiddie's offense. I like the Toronto Argonauts to win this game because Ottawa stinks. And that is the end of my analysis. Yeah, it doesn't really matter who the Argos have at quarterback at this stage. Chad Kelly, of course, that would be an automatic win. But even Cameron Dukes and what he showed against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers a few weeks ago when they were resting a number of starters, that type of performance against Ottawa, that's a win by a couple touchdowns. It's now time for Hodges' heritage moment. On this day in 2020, Chase Claypool scored four touchdowns in a 38-29 victory over the Philadelphia Eagles. It was just the fourth game of the second-round draft pick's career and his first-ever start. The Abbotsford, B.C. native became the first Canadian-born player ever to score four touchdowns in an NFL game and was the first Steeler to do so in over 50 years. Claypool fell just shy of 1,000 yards in his two seasons in Pittsburgh before the relationship with the team soured. 
He was traded to the Chicago Bears during the 2022 season where his production was limited and he received criticism for playing with a lack of effort. He was recently traded to the Miami Dolphins. Dunk, what do you remember about this performance from Mr. Claypool? It was unbelievable, man. That year, there was no CFL season, of course. So Three Down Nation became almost Chase Claypool Nation because he had such a great (laughs) rookie season. And I really hope that he can get his focus and want to back because he's in a great place. Mike McDaniel, the Dolphins head coach, said the slate is clean. He is going to judge Claypool on what he does in South Beach. So straighten up and fly right because this might be your last opportunity in the NFL, Mr. Claypool. Yeah, for me, Claypool's career is just about wasted opportunities. And I've got to be a little bit careful here not to put any bulletin board material up because I play his alma mater on uh, on Friday this week for my high school team. So there's a little bad blood there. I don't want to put anything up for that team to use as inspiration. I know Claypool's jersey is hanging up in their locker room right now. But here's a guy who showed all the potential in the world that first season and just has failed to deliver because of his own failure to focus and work hard and and really dedicate himself to his craft. It's still not over. He's got another opportunity, but he's looking like a guy, if he doesn't smarten up, who won't get a second contract. Yeah, Claypool looked like – he, he made it look so easy as a rookie that I question if his heart is really in it. Right. Like it's almost like he achieved so much success so quickly. He's burnt out on the NFL and and obviously the the huge amount of work and dedication and time and effort that goes into performing at a high level in that league. He is a pending free agent. So I think for the reasons you guys laid out, this is do or die time for him, though. I will permanently feel indebted to Mr. Claypool for giving us literally anything to write about during the fall of 2020 because between that and um a whole lot of nothing from the cfl office that was that was basically all we had to go on not fun times there wasn't a whole lot of nothing from the cfl office remember when randy ambrosi asked the government for how much money was it again oh geez more than they needed let's not bring that up doug that's it that's in the past (laughs) There was a little more than nothing. I think it was 150 million, wasn't it? I think it was, it was more than. I'll put it this it? way: it, it, there was more than nothing, but nothing worth anything. It's time for the three-minute drill. The CFL trade deadline passed without any movement for the third straight year. No television coverage from TSN like they do for hockey. Nothing like that. Was there any reason there was no movement? Well, when the trade deadline hit on October 4th, every team was still in playoff contention. So. If you're still in playoff contention, you're not, you're not trading away assets that could potentially help you. So that makes sense to me. But yeah, it would be nice if we actually had something to talk about on deadline day. The Toronto Argonauts signed six foot six receiver Carlton Agadosi after he was released from Winnipeg's practice roster. Could he make an impact for them? I think he could. And, and this is one of a series of moves that moves that Toronto has made of late adding pieces that have been cut from other teams that have showed promise who could help them if they get an injury in this playoff run. I think it's really smart management by the Argos right now, getting these guys for cheap with the promise of playoff money. Egadosi is a guy who can step into the lineup if you need him to. 
The odds makers clearly like Toronto's chances of winning this year's Grey Cup, setting the odds at plus 140. Should they be favored so heavily? Yes, the Argos are undefeated in every single game that Chad Kelly has started and finished. Staple his ass to the bench and let him come out and play in that East Final at BMO Field, roll to the Grey Cup. Toronto looks so deep and a difficult out in the playoffs. And if you're going to place wagers on the CFL, do so through 3downnation.com. Go to our odds page. We got all the best lines there. Please do so responsibly. The Wilfrid Laurier University Golden Hawks reached the top five of the U Sports football rankings after defeating the University of Ottawa GGs 38-30, improving to 6-0 on the season. Can the G-Hawks run the table and go undefeated? Well, they're 6-0, and I give them full credit for that. However, their two toughest tests have yet to come. Saturday, the 14th, they play Windsor, who have been very good this year. And then the last game of the year on the 21st, they have to travel to London to take on the undefeated Western Mustangs. So credit to the Golden Hawks. They deserve to be top five. But the real tests are still to come. Offensive coordinator Scott Milanovic was unable to attend Hamilton's win in Regina last week for family reasons, leaving offensive line coach Mike Gibson to call the plays. With the unit putting up 38 points, how impressive was that? Massively impressive, and it's a sign of a well-coached team. You know, earlier in the season, when the Ticats were struggling and losing to start the year, I said uh, I said that Orlando Steinhauer should be on the hot seat, but he made the tough move to axe his friend Tommy Condell. He brought in Milanovic, and it's clear that this team is on a roll right now, and they've got other members of the coaching staff that can step up if needed, and execute their job at a high level. Level Gibson has called plays in the CFL before, hasn't had a ton of success, but boy, did he have success this week. Chad Owens signed a one-day contract to officially retire as a member of the Toronto Argonauts. Just how special was he back in the day? The flying Hawaiian was a sight to behold, whether it was catching balls or returning punts, missed field goals, kickoffs for touchdown. That dude was very unique, kind of in the mold of a pinball Clemens in terms of his size. I was at BMO Field for that 150th anniversary reunion. Chad Owens, almost said Chad Kelly. Chad Owens was walking around the stadium and was still signing autographs. Argos fans will never forget him. Darian Durant spoke with CGME Radio in Regina and credited an infamous Twitter spat for helping the team turn things around to win the Grey Cup in 2013. Twitter helped a team win a championship? That seems crazy. Does it make sense? Well, here's my thought. If it does make sense, I don't know if it does, but the 2023 Riders have tried just about everything else. I think they need their whole team. <laughs> just don't even practice this week. Just, just cause beef on Twitter. Call tweet, out three donation on Twitter. Tweet Craig at, at, we'll tweet. Yeah. Tweet at us. Tweet at everybody. Just do whatever you can to get your blood hot for this game. Cause everything else you've tried has not worked. Austin Mack returned from injury this past week, but made only three catches for 40 yards for the Alouettes. Were you surprised he wasn't more effective? Surprised, but keep in mind, this was their fourth matchup of the season against Ottawa, which is not a great secondary, but if you give 
any team four separate weeks to watch the film, they better be able to at least slow down a team's top target. I expect that Mac will continue to be effective against other teams this season. TSN color analyst Dwayne Ford said he doesn't like cold turkey. Well, TSN play-by-play man Dustin Nielsen said he doesn't eat pumpkin pie. Are either of these valid Thanksgiving food takes? Dwayne Ford's is because I don't eat any meat unless it's fish to begin with. So I oh, understand why are kind we of where he's coming Dunk from. This question. <laughs> well, I thought Dwayne Ford would call himself a meatitarian. What's this your is, take, JC? Let it out. I, I, I just, why are we asking the pescatarian this question? You this asked Thanksgiving it. food. Hey, it's, it's a big man question. I, why are you even queue me up for this? I don't know. Who doesn't eat pumpkin pie? Me. If, if, if I was, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I think hey. pumpkin pie is gross, bro. Uh, I don't like pumpkin pie. If I, if I was in charge of the world. Both you and Dustin Nielsen would be imprisoned for that food take. Pumpkin pie Prison. is Jeez. the best Thanksgiving prisoners, food there is. Prisoners are actually the only people who should be made to eat pumpkin pie. That like garbage <laughs> with no texture. It's just mush and pastry. It's gross, this, bro. This is astounding. I can't believe no. this. No, it's, is... it's not astounding. If pumpkin pie was so good, we'd eat it more than once a year. That's all I I'm do. saying. Whenever it's available, I get that pumpkin pie out. It's delicious. Well, I JC, hope you what do you have to it. say for pumpkin pie? Hodge called it mush. It's gross mush in it's pastry. It's delicious. It's delectable. It has the perfect texture, the perfect spicing. And it's it, the best thing about it is just a vehicle for whipped cream, which only <laughs> Just eat whipped cream. Just shake experience. it up and spray the whipped cream in your mouth, bro. Oh, I have on many an occasion, but you've got to at least have an excuse to do it. Otherwise, you look like a weirdo. So the pumpkin pie gives you the vehicle for the whipped cream. I can't believe I'm the only one on this hill. This is astounding. Well, Dunk never actually said what he thinks about pumpkin pie, though I don't think he generally eats sweets. He doesn't eat sugar. I would eat pumpkin pie if Grandma Dunk, R.I.P., made it. If she makes a homemade pie, she always used to make strawberry rhubarb for me on my birthday in May. Shout out to my late grandma. Love her very much. If she made it, I would eat it. But other than that, nah, I ain't eating no pumpkin pie. I don't want no baby food. I don't need that stuff. Give me some protein, It is baby okay? food. Give me it's some legumes, food. man. Give me some kale. I think technically pumpkin is a legume. So I don't know. All I know is I think that's the first time someone has ever authoritatively yelled the words, give me some kale. <laughs> first time. I've said everything. it a bunch of times to Ray Morrison in mostly empty CFL stadiums for eSports games. Well, fair enough. I, 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 don't really, I don't really get with kale. I like greens. So I don't I really get with kale. And I is certainly. Pumpkin a legume? We need to answer this question. Otherwise, okay, everybody I'm... who listening is going to wonder. Okay, I'm pumpkin Googling it right now. A legume. JC, you should know this. You okay, think the I first... eat a lot of legumes, Doug? As a pumpkin defender, you should know this. They are a type of fruit called a legume, according to ah, herebydesign.net. There we Wait, go. Wait, pumpkin is a, legume? is a type of fruit. That's correct. Learn something every day. I was this many years old, or this day years old, when I learned that pumpkin was a fruit. See, That's should, crazy. It should be your favorite pie. It's just all... <laughs> All the good stuff you love, Dunk. 
pumpkin is Fair trash. enough. Maybe I'm missing out. Pumpkin is like I, there. There's like seven foods I don't like, and pumpkin's one of them. I, I don't get. I don't get with pumpkin. But uh, there's, anyways, there's no foods I don't like. We thank you as always for listening to the Three Donation Podcast. If you, like you kale, are not a pumpkin pie fan, hopefully you did not get subjected to that awful, disgusting rot over Thanksgiving. If you are a pumpkin pie fan, hopefully you seek therapy, just like JC is going to have to after this podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.